Coming up, the latest on the COVID-19 scare at Hopkins Correctional Centre. Jacob Gibson shares his journey from Marion College to backstage at Billy Elliot. Emma Coburn is back with some travel tips. Dynamic Dance moves classes online and a local winery is exporting its wine to Japan. You're listening to Arat's Latest with local journalist Jack Ward. Hello and welcome. It's great to be with you. I'll have the latest on the coronavirus scare at Hopkins Correctional Centre in just a moment. But first, we've had a lot of developments today in regards to the COVID-19 restrictions as we begin our journey out the other side of the pandemic. National Cabinet convened on Friday and today Daniel Andrews announced the changes Victoria will be making. There is now a fifth reason to leave home and one of the initial four reasons has been altered. Essentially, from 11.59 tomorrow night, Victorians will have be able to have five guests and they can be family or friends to their home. Groups of 10 will now also be allowed to go outside to engage in activities such as hiking, jogging, kicking the footy and golf. Funerals, church gatherings, weddings, auctions and the like will also be able to have more people than previously allowed. Weddings will now be able to have 10 guests and up to 20 people will be able to attend funerals held indoors and up to 30 if the funeral is held outdoors. Schools will start to return to on-site learning in a staggered approach. There's been no announcement today about what that looks like, but it will happen before the end of term. Professional sports will be allowed to restart training, paving the way for the return of seasons such as the AFL and NRL. Counselling services and community groups can restart, but only with physical restriction rules and no more than 10 in a group. There are no distance limits on how far people can travel, but with no overnight stays allowed, people should not be travelling too far, Daniel Andrews says. Camping, of course, is not currently allowed. If you can work from home, you're being told you must work from home for the rest of May at least. These new restrictions and a renewed state of emergency will be in place until 11.59 on Sunday the 31st of May. Returning now to Hopkins Correctional Centre, the facility has taken precautions after three prisoners returned inclusive results for coronavirus. Prisoners were locked down late last week with three asymptomatic inmates who have been tested as part of the statewide testing blitz returning positive results for COVID-19. The trio has since undergone subsequent tests, as many as two per prisoner, which have all come back negative. Further contact tracing has been conducted with almost 200 reported additional prisoners tested for coronavirus. All tests have returned negative results. Victoria's Chief Health Officer Brett Sutton commented on the situation this morning. Uh, So the Hopkins Correctional Facility did find three positive cases. They're a bit unusual. So um, those three uh, inmates uh, were all asymptomatic, so none of them were unwell. Um, But nonetheless, the tests were positive. We've done uh, a barrage of tests of their close contacts and they've all been negative as well. Uh, So it remains a bit of a mystery. Uh, It is useful that they've been picked up. Again, it might be telling us something about uh, what we're unaware of uh, unless we do um, some active testing. So investigations will continue. Um, Those individuals have all tested negative subsequently, so they're not a risk to others. Uh, And obviously testing of their close contacts and turning up negatives is is also very reassuring. But we will do ongoing investigations to understand the significance of those tests. 
Ararat's latest will have any updates if the situation changes. Louise Daly, our state MP for Ripon, is with me now to discuss some of today's developments. Louise, some interesting news out of Hopkins Correctional Centre today. Three COVID-19 tests of prisoners are now under investigation. What do you make of the situation? Well, I'm not sure what to make of it, Jack, because there just hasn't been uh, a good flow of information, I think. So it seems that three tested positive once, but then they've been retested and those tests came back negative. Uh, and I understand um, you know, a couple of hundred people have been tested who work there and they're negative. But I'm just... That's what I know, and I know it from talking to journalists and... and uh, uh, reading it on Twitter, which I, I just don't think is a really good way to have the information hit the community. I, I just think they should have, you know, the authorities should have somehow either by, tell, you know, there's lots of media around. Um, they could have put it in, in the Ararat Advocate on Friday. I just think it was pretty poor that it came out via a tweet uh, from a, a Melbourne journalist this morning. Yeah, and when you say calling for a, a more information, are you talking about more information about the cases or a, more of a clarity of information? Clarity of information. So I just think, you know, this is a relatively small community. It's it's not uh, Melbourne and people who work at Hopkins live in this region uh, and there'd be every second or third house in Ararat would have somebody touched by somebody who works in Hopkins. It's a very big employer. And I, I think people just want to know, well, do they need to go and get tested? Um, ha, you know, are we, is that the question, I think? is I think people just want to know, are there any cases in the Ararat community at the moment? And um, if there's not, that's fantastic. Uh, but if we all should go and get tested, well, then I'm sure people will go and do that. So it's just an information thing, I think, that's missing. Yeah, and listening listening to our chief um, health officer in his the press conference this morning, even the way he was explaining it, it was it was quite confusing. I think, and he was even confused about what is going on, which I think is a, demonstrates the uniqueness of the situation. Yes, yes, I I heard that too, and I I agree. I I, I can hold that he might not know about every single case and might not have had the detail, but this one, uh, I just think. Back on, from very long ago, 7th of May, the stats came out that there were no active cases in Ararat. And I think a lot of people went, yay, you know. And uh, and then this, so I, I just think it's an information thing. And, and that will clear up a lot of the questions people are asking. And, and I hope a lot of the fear in the community because uh, you know, people are, I think, concerned. And I understand that. And... Information is uh, is a great uh, what, what do they say? Sunlight is a great disinfectant. Yeah. So so we could have some more sunlight, I think. Ararat, of course, has had no cases um for a little while now. And at the mm. council meeting last week, it was mentioned that the street seems to be getting a little bit busier. Are you concerned about people maybe relaxing their own their own thoughts about what's going on? I am concerned that people think they can re reinterpret the rules. For, to suit themselves. And uh, I think we're seeing streets everywhere getting busier. And clearly the rules still say if you uh, can work from home, you must. If 
you know, you must stay home except for the four reasons. Now, they, they have increased how today how uh, many people can visit each other for, you know, friends and family. It's now five. But apart from that, you, you shouldn't be out unless you're exercising or uh, going to work or, or education, uh, compassionate reasons or essential shopping. And uh, I think people are sort of taking it into their own hands and I'm sure in their own minds they're saying it's okay but it's not okay. Uh, I do think that we need to keep to the rules. Uh, I think it's a sign that people are feeling more comfortable which is good but the rules are there you know for our protection. We'll move on now. Many businesses have been pivoting, moving their model online to accommodate the imposed restrictions. Dynamic Dance Ararat has made the transition into online dancing, which has seen local students transform their lounge rooms into makeshift dance studios. Rachel Koenig has taken on the new role of online studio major at Dynamic Dance Ararat and joins me now. Rachel, what has the transition process been like? Uh, the transition process has been quite a difficult one. Um, as a dance studio, we haven't been using uh, online very much. We've mostly been sticking to our studio. So moving all of our teachers online, as well as getting all of our students re-enrolled in their classes, has been a difficult process. But we're very lucky that our students have been very um, enthusiastic and persevered through all of our little difficulties that we've come across. Yeah, definitely. And no doubt, has there been any technical challenges along the way? There has been um, things like uh, our uh, internet, unfortunately, being a little bit laggy sometimes. So there is sound delays when we use Zoom. Um, There's been upload delays occasionally. But our teachers are battling through and trying our best to make sure our content is all delivered to our students. Yeah, and how are you delivering that content? What's the teaching looking like? Is it live or pre-recorded? We're actually doing a bit of a mix of both. So the majority of our classes are delivered by pre-recorded videos which we are uploading via YouTube and then distributing to our mailing list and then from there we're also doing our Zoom catch-up where we have optional little catch-ups with our teachers and students where they can show us what they've learnt during their lessons. We can have a bit of a catch-up and a socialise with our students and then we also do have um, our online privates as well which are conducted via Zoom with our teachers. Because when you're conducting these classes I guess if you were to do them live and everyone was dancing to the music it would it would be laggy wouldn't it? It wouldn't really work. It is. So sometimes when you're watching the screen from the teacher's perspective, you'll have three different dancers on the screen all dancing to three different times. So <laughs> while they can all hear it at the same time from their end, from a teacher's point of view, you do actually have a bit of a bit of trouble um, giving corrections in that sense because timing-wise, it's all over the place. So luckily, we can correct more on our technique and our steps rather than timing. Yeah. And how many students do you have enrolled this term? Has it gone up or down with this new online learning? Um, we have kept around a bit over 50% of our student base. Um, a lot of students have decided that they will return once we're back in the studio, but due to different circumstances, that they won't be continuing online. And enrolments have ranged um, depending on what styles they do. Some of them are really thriving in this environment. Um, the ones who have lots of motivation and are super into our social medias, They're loving the fact that they can do all their activities at home plus extra. Uh, With our lessons, we're not only just offering the level that they're at. So say if you're an intermediate dancer, you're not just getting the intermediate class. You're actually getting the beginner, intermediate and senior of that style. So there is that extra opportunity for more to be learnt. 
We, of course, then also have our students, especially our younger age ranges, who um, really wish we were back in the studio. They really miss that one-on-one face contact with our teachers. But again, they're all doing super, super well in just pushing through, trying again, rewinding videos and just having as many attempts as they need to just learn what they what they're offered. And I've, I've noticed in the last few weeks, your social media presence has increased as well. Is that part of uh, your, I guess, branching into that online dancing direction? Yeah, it sure is. Uh, we already had a public Facebook page as well as our members Facebook page, but we have branched out into the Instagram world. Uh, we have our fantastic social media manager, um, Ella. She has taken over our Instagram and is doing a fabulous job at in interacting with a lot of the younger students, students between the age of 10 and 15 who don't have access to Facebook yet, who only their parents are on, they can now access us by Instagram instead. So it kind of reaches that newer market that we didn't reach before. Looking ahead, your dance concert's usually in term three. Is this going to throw a spanner in the works? It possibly will. Um, we do have a backup plan for dates, uh, looking further along into the year Um, we're really hoping that we can still possibly have our September concert but we have asked all of our families to look into some December dates instead either way we really want to ensure that our students have an opportunity to perform this year as it's such a vital part of our dance community Dynamic Dance is still taking enrolments if you want to beat isolation boredom with a boogie further details can be found on their Facebook page Local boutique winery Sub Rosa shipped a pallet of their handmade and hand-labelled Grampians and Pyrenees wine to Japan last month, which is now also available at the Ararat IGA. Nancy Panter is the winery's co-founder and joins me now to discuss this exciting news. Nancy, can you tell me about your wine exports? Yes, thank you. We recently shipped a pallet of our, our Sub Rosa wine to Japan. This is the second uh, pallet of wine that we've sent in the last 12 months. Uh, which is really, really exciting, especially considering we are such a small winery. We only make 400 to 600 cases of uh, wine from the Grampians and Pyrenees each year. And how did that relationship with Japan start? Adam Lauder, our winemaker, does an exceptionally good job at making wine and the reputation for our wine uh, earned us the opportunity to do a tasting with a distributor in Japan. And we did that tasting um, early last year and um, from that, that resulted in our wine being selected as one of the small wineries that uh, this Japanese distributor uh, uh, wanted from Australia. So we sent our first pallet of wine last June and uh, our second pallet in April this year. That first, um, I guess, you know, when you did that tasting and you were first told that you were going to be exporting that wine, that must have been exciting for you. It was very exciting, uh, but nerve-wracking all the same because there's a lot of paperwork and uh, a lot of things that you need to do to ensure that um, your wine meets all the guidelines to export. And um, with a very young family at the time, we uh, we exported our first pallet when I had a uh, or we had a two-month-old son, so it was very challenging. Yeah, is it is it difficult to navigate that export market? Uh, there are. Lots of people out there and lots of wineries that have done it before. So I was really fortunate to get some counsel and advice from a couple of wineries that uh, have exported before. But yes, there is, uh, it, like anything new, you have to learn how to do it. But the hardest part is just making sure the paperwork is correct. 
And uh, have you had any interest from other countries other than Japan? Yes, we have. We've uh, had some interest from customers in countries like Singapore and Hong Kong and the United States. But at the moment, we're taking it very slowly and, and going to export to Japan for a little while before we, uh, before we explore those other markets. How well does your wine sell locally? Well, we don't have a cellar door, so we do uh, rely on selling our wine online at subrosawine.com and also events like what was supposed to happen uh, this weekend, which is Grampian's Great Escape. Uh, so that's how we normally sell our wine. And we also have it in some bottle shops and restaurants. And only recently, actually, have we got our wine into the IGA and our app, which is very exciting. Lots of businesses are being impacted currently by the pandemic. It sounds like you're actually going through quite an exciting time. Are you having any impacts at all by what's happening at the moment? Of course, no business. I don't think any business could say that they have had zero impact by the current scenario. Um, we sell a lot of our wine to restaurants, bars, bottle shops, and uh, all of those sales are, are non-existent at the moment. So we're relying solely on our uh, our retail sales via our website and our exports. And Nancy, your wine at Sub Rosa is also award-winning. Yes, very excitingly. Uh Adam Lauder, our winemaker, has made our Grampians Viognier, our 2018 Grampians Viognier, and it has been reviewed recently by Hugh and Hook and rated as the number one Viognier in Australia. It's so exciting and so wonderful to see that Adam is, is receiving these kinds of accolades. For a small business like yourself, how important is it to get those accolades? It's really so important. I mean, Hugh and Hook is a renowned Australian wine reviewer and to get his stamp of approval on our very small winery is just, is, it is absolutely wonderful. It gives us a great opportunity to market our wine and to people who are not familiar with us because we've only been around a short period of time. They'll recognise names like Hugh and Hook and James Halliday. And when they see that not only are we being awarded gold and silver medals for our wines, but also number one in Australia for Viognier, that's huge. Also, they're awarding us things like top value or special value, which means that our wines are great value for money. And that's really important to us as well because that's one of the things we really want to do is make great wine at an affordable and and a, a great value price. Do you have a story? Are you or someone you know holding a community event? I want to know what you know about local issues and upcoming events. Contact Ararat's Latest via Facebook, Instagram, Twitter or email Latest at gmail.com. Your story may instigate a community discussion, help a local organisation and importantly, keep locals informed. We heard from local travel agent Emma Coburn in our last show. She shared the stress she's going through due to the halt on travel at the moment. She's back in this episode to offer some advice for those who might have holidays booked. Emma, what should locals be doing if that is the case? Okay, at the moment, if it's still booked, I am looking at anything after the 31st of July. I'm sort of advising my customers to wait, to wait and see what happens. Mainly not saying that, you know, the world's going to be back to normal by then because it probably isn't. The likelihood is it's probably not um, from all news reports that I'm listening to daily. But at the moment, a lot of 
fee, waiver fees and everything is only up until that 31st of July. So, for instance, I cancelled my trip to America that was meant to be in June and um, Qantas had extended their policy, so it included my trip date. I get a full, you know, flight credit for the amount that I have paid. So, as you can imagine, flights are probably one of the major costs to anyone's trip, whether it's domestically or internationally. So, I would I would recommend that if you're if you are due to travel after the first of August, just wait because they're, they're, these policies are changing, and I I believe that. In May, we may see another extension of those um, fee waivers. And so then at least if you can reap some of your money back, even in a flight credit or, you know, a hotel credit, you're going to, yeah, at least not lose your money. Does that, uh, a time like this, show the importance of having a travel agent? I, uh, yeah, I do think that people from here will see the importance of, you know, having a travel agent booking their trip. I, I have spent hours and hours, you know, with my customers, making sure that they know what I'm doing and, and what I'm cancelling and making sure they're comfortable with all that. If you've booked it yourself, you have to do that. You have to spend the hours trying to get onto the supplier. I've spent, I have spent five hours on, on hold to one supplier before to get the information I need to cancel, you know, just flight bookings. You know, I can do that in a month doing other bits and pieces on the computer. I, I don't think people really want to be doing that in, you know, in the middle of their day. So I think the, the importance that I want to put out is that, you know, travel agents, we don't cost any extra money. We, you know, we aren't trying to, you know, beat the cheapest flights that you can find. We all go generally through direct, through the, the suppliers. Looking ahead to the next 12 months or more than that, there's talk that international travel might not be possible until after we find a vaccine. And who knows when domestic travel will be allowed again. As you said, it's a waiting game, really. Are you concerned yes. about the future for your business? Uh, very. I'm very concerned. I, Like I said earlier, it is a waiting game. Um, I am hoping, and, and I say that with bated breath, really, um, I am hoping that within a six-month period, we'll be able to travel somewhat domestically and internationally. I won't say right around the world. Um, and I think that from a lot of information that I'm reading, that even internationally, it may be very restricted still. But um, my, you know, 90% of my business is international travel. I, I make custom itineraries for customers and... It's hard. It's hard looking at something that I've basically built from scratch over the last, you know, 12, 14 months. It's really hard watching it disappear before my eyes and so quickly as well. There's just been an interesting development in regards to Hopkins Correctional Centre that's just come through. Our at Rural City's confirmed cases of coronavirus now sits at four according to the Department of Health and Human Services. Ararat had its only case confirmed on March 31st. However, interestingly, the department has now updated our cases to include the three inconclusive tests recorded at Hopkins Correctional Centre. The three inmates returned positive tests, as we heard earlier, but were subject to further testing and subsequently returned negative results. So it's interesting to see that they've been added to our tally. 
Moving along now, Jacob Gibson spent hours in the Marion College Drama Hall as a teenager, discovering his passion for stage management and the magic of a live performance whilst growing up in Ararat. He joins me now. Jacob, where did your love for theatre come from? Uh, I think it's kind of a two-part story, that one. Um, Definitely um, my mum started to take me to um, musicals in Melbourne in my early years of high school, and I thought, oh my God, this is what is this amazing industry, and these shows are incredible and I just thought this was this um, incredible thing to, to see on stage. And then uh, the other part would be um, at high school when I was at Marin College, uh, I got quite involved with our high school productions from a backstage perspective. And so I was really enjoying it uh, doing that and the organisational nature of the of the, the backstage work I was doing and, and the collaborative nature of putting on a show. So. I think that's where I really fell in love with her. Do you have some fond memories of the productions at Marion College? Yeah, I, I mean, I worked very closely with um, my drama teacher at the time, Chess Tog. We would spend hours <laughs> working on these shows and, and building sets and planning and rehearsals and, and lots of time after school working on, on putting these shows together. And I just love all this effort and hard work we put in and then culminating in these wonderful shows at the town hall. And what, what were some of those shows? Uh, we did West Side Story, uh, uh, Jekyll and Hyde, Into the Woods, uh, was some of the ones that I was involved with. And what was life in high school like for you? Uh, very busy. <laughs> I tried to do a lot of uh, extra things, whether the school production was a, lot of, um, a big one there. Uh, but I did, I did enjoy high school. I, yeah, I was very busy at the time um, with lots of other projects on the side. Uh, so I do have fond memories of, of being at Marion College. And you left Marion College in 2010 with so many possible options and pathways. How did you decide what the next uh, best route was for you? I thought about what I enjoyed at that time, what I thought I would like to do. Uh, in year 12, I spent, I did an internship on the professional production of West Side Story in Melbourne for a week. And it was there that I realised that what I wanted to do. This is um, an industry that I'd like to, to get involved with. So from there, I kind of investigated what kind of um, study options I could do and stumbled upon a course at the Victorian College of the Arts. That first internship at West Side Story, you must have been in your element. Absolutely. I think back to it now as like a 17-year-old kid amongst like the professional industry. And uh, yeah, I think back, wow, and uh, I was so lucky to have that opportunity. But now I look back at it and think that I'm now friends with a lot of those people that I met on that internship and, and now I have some very close friends who uh, I met at that time. So it's wonderful to think of how full circle I've come. The theatre industry can be quite hard to crack into. How hard was it to get that first internship? Uh, absolutely. It was a lot of emailing. I've discovered over my uh, uh, the early days of my career that I sent a lot of emails and I probably annoyed a lot of people. Uh, but I was a bit relentless in, in trying to gain as much experience as I could, whether it just be going and observing and, and giving my time up for free to assist where I could and, and learn from these industry professionals because having internships and gaining those contacts are the most important thing you could have uh, up your sleeve when you're trying to, to get a job in the industry. I finished at the VCA during 2013 and then I did a lot of work at the production company, which was a company in Melbourne that put on um, smaller concert-style musicals um, over a two-week period, and then they ran for a week. So it was quite very, um, very high-intense um, and short-term shows. Uh, but I think I learned a lot of, of the basis of my experience there. 
um, in their office and then putting on the shows with them, um, which is really wonderful. And then I went on to work on more commercial shows um, in stage management um, on a show called Once, uh, followed by the Rocky Horror Show, Phantom of the Opera, Singing in the Rain, uh, and then the Book of Mormon. And then after that, uh, I had a little bit of time to think about what I wanted to do because I was enjoying stage management so much. But I thought, I don't know if this is what I want to do forever. So I, I started to think about what else I could do. Uh, I went and did the Commonwealth Games opening and closing ceremonies on the Gold Coast, which was such a wonderful experience because it's unlike anything I've ever done before. It's such a massive scale to do a ceremony. Uh, so that was quite an experience. And then after that, I moved into um, company management roles which are more a broader management role um, on productions. And since then, I did Evita, West Side Story, uh, and most recently, Billy Elliot. The production company has announced its closure recently, hasn't it? It has, yeah. After 21 years, they've closed their doors. I think uh, the market's becoming extremely difficult at this time for the industry, uh, and I think they've achieved incredible amounts of success and given so many people in the industry uh, opportunities. I really would not be where I am today without their support. And mass gatherings like live performances have been banned for some weeks now, which does mean that the live performances such musicals in Melbourne and around the world have had to halt their production. What does this mean for you? Yeah, absolutely. So currently everybody is shut down um, across the world, which is such a shame. Um, But obviously we need to put the health and safety of everybody first. Uh, But uh, ultimately that means I'm unemployed now. I don't have a job. When the government put in the restrictions on the mass gatherings, Billy Elliot had to close because we were unable to continue without an audience, of course. So therefore um, uh, our contracts end on the show uh, because we're disemployed for the, the period of the show. And how is that? Is that stressful? The musical theatre. I guess you finish a production, you mightn't have a job straight away. That is part of the industry, isn't it? Absolutely, yeah. It is part of the industry. It's what we sign up for. I think, um, in a way, the short-term nature of our contracts and and going from job to job and trying to work out what's next makes us more resilient in a way, and it makes us able to handle these times much better than say some people that aren't used to the nature of of being unemployed in this way. But um, it is difficult, especially knowing that we, there's no future in sight. All our future work is being cancelled now um, for weeks and months because we don't know when these restrictions are going to be end. Um, unfortunately, the theatre is the first to go and will probably be the last to come back when these restrictions are lifted. So it is a scary time, um, but we have to wait and see about when we can go back to work. So the shows rely on a lot of international creative teams coming over to put on shows. So we'll have to wait till international travel bans are lifted. And I think we'll be seeing uh, theatre produced in a different way, which is exciting. I'm not sure what that is, but I think there'll be some more creative ways of, of how, we, how we do the arts in this country after we can go back to work. It's time to share this week's Your Say poll results. The question refers to the COVID-19 restrictions. Are you concerned about locals ignoring those? 201 people had their say this week. 80% of voters said they are concerned about locals ignoring restrictions and 20% said they are not. An Irish U at Arradale has recently been a finalist in the 2020 National Trust Victorian Tree of the Year contest. Although it didn't win the Trees nominator and Deakin Uni student Jackie Sanders is with me to tell us all about the finalists. Jackie, what is the purpose of this competition? Okay, so uh, the National Trust of Victoria are running the Victorian Tree of the, of the Year. Uh, basically, there's 20,000 trees registered on the National Trust Register of Significant Trees across Australia. 
uh, this year Victorian National Trust have concentrated on regional Victoria and they've shortlisted nine finalists. As part of that process, um, the RSU at Aradale Asylum was nominated. So uh, it's part of the Victorian Tree of the Year contest at the moment. You nominated the tree. Why, why was that? Um, well, I'm doing my master's research paper um, on Aradale and part of that process was looking at the conservation analysis, which was written in 1996. So we looked at the trees as part of that process and we realised that it needs another assessment. So we had a conversation with National Trust, um, lots of toing and froing of emails, and realised, you know, the Irish year was quite important for a number of reasons. And so as part of that process, I guess the tree was put forward as a shortlisted nominee. When you say for a number of reasons, what are those reasons? Um, let me have a look. With trees, they're just as important as buildings. Um, people think it's a, way, a waste of time to protect trees, but I think it's important for them to think about the connection of those trees and the connection to our history and heritage. And they connect us in different ways to the stories of places. So with Aradale, there's a collection of mature trees up there. Um, some date from the mid-19th century, uh, the oaks in the female airing court, and, of course, the others in there as well from Hugh Lineker and that's what the RSU is associated with, that connection. And I guess we always concentrate on the stories the trees can tell and I guess where it's situated in the male Erin court and it's been there for a hundred years, I'm pretty much tipping it's got a lot of stories to tell. We just need to do a little bit more research and find some more of those stories but I think its primary purpose is to Hugh Lineker who was known as the gardener, the landscape gardener to the lunacy department. So that's why the trees are significant and both our history and our heritage. And how excited were you when you found out that it had been shortlisted? Oh, very excited. Um, we weren't expecting it. Our first goal was to, I guess we were looking at the oaks more so in the female airing court. Um, they're quite magnificent if you've been onto the site. They're, they're very shady and beautiful. But to have the Irish U chosen is quite a surprise. Um, we didn't know a lot about the tree. We still really don't know a lot about the tree. We know it was planted 100 years ago. We know it was planted by Hugh Lineker. But there's these little stories that are popping up around that tree. It's amazing how many stories. I mean, that tree would have seen a lot of things over the last 100 years. I think so, yes. That brings me to the end of today's show. Thank you for joining me. I do want to mention that Ararat's latest is broadcasting once a fortnight at the moment, obviously. To accommodate my new job at the Ararat Advocate, I'll keep you updated if and when anything changes in the coming weeks. I would also like to thank everyone for their lovely messages this week after I was named Student Journalist of the Year. I couldn't be more thankful to you, the Ararat community, for your continued support and for allowing me to share your stories. It's an absolute honour. Have a great week. This was Ararat's latest.